0: Before we dive into God's word. Let's open up with a word of prayer, Father. I'm grateful for Your word. I'm grateful that it leads us and guides us. That by diving into it, we dive into knowledge of You. And Lord, I pray that the knowledge that we have is enhanced by the love that we have for You, and that we would not be puffed up by that knowledge, Lord, but we would use the knowledge that we have to love others well. What as we look at Paul's words to the Corinthians in chapter eight? I pray that we would have a desire uh, to lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are uh, not quite as far along in their walk with you as we are. Uh, I pray that we would have a desire to uh, push aside all of our rights uh, so that we would not cause anyone to stumble, as we're going to see here today in your word. We love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. So, as we have been going through the, the letter... Uh, To the Corinthians, we have been seeing a few little instances, I guess you could say, of Christian liberty that has come up a a few times. Uh, We talked a little bit about Christian liberty uh, when, in chapter 5, with the issue of the man having a sexual relationship with his uh, stepmother came up. Uh, They were championing that with the idea that uh, with christian liberty we were free to do essentially anything that we want we talked a little bit about christian liberty in chapter six where the corinthians declared in the letter that they sent to paul this is paul addressing that letter uh, they said to him in that letter everything is permissible for me Uh, and it was it looks like they were using that idea to justify inappropriate relationship with prostitutes and they were saying it's permissible because we have freedom in christ there's liberty there uh, and there, Paul made the argument that while everything might be permissible, not everything is beneficial. Right? By this, Paul doesn't mean that God is okay with inappropriate relationships with prostitutes. He's just saying that uh, acknowledging for the person who is, who is truly in Christ, who has a saving relationship in Christ, that the inappropriate relationship is not going to send you to hell because Jesus died to cover all of our sins. All the sins that we have committed in the past, all the sins that we're committing now, all the sins that we will commit in the future for the Christian, all of those sins have been paid for by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. All of them have been paid for, and they are that, that salvation is applied to us through our faith in Christ. So, essentially he's saying that just because that sexual act won't send you to hell because of your relationship with Jesus, that doesn't mean that you should engage in that activity. Right, the price has been paid, but because you were bought with a price, you should live your life for Christ. The reason that they shouldn't engage in that is because it goes against God's nature and design for sexual relationships. It's sinful behavior that will harm your mind, it will harm your heart, and in certain cases it could be harmful to your body as well. And so we should not be participating in those kind of relationships. Even if it is permissible, even if it's not going to condemn us to hell, we should not be participating in that because it's not beneficial to us. But overall, though, that's not what Christian liberty is about anyway. Our Christian liberty isn't about being able to do whatever you want with whomever you want, whenever you want, or however you want. That's a misunderstanding of Christian liberty. If that's what comes to mind when you think about freedom in Christ, then either you don't have a relationship with Christ at all or you have an immature relationship with Christ. You can't walk with Christ for long and believe that you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. Christian liberty is about being set free from the ceremonial law of God because Christ fulfilled it. So you have freedom. Christian liberty is about being released from the punishment of sin that we owe because Christ paid for it through His sinless life and His atoning sacrifice on the cross. So in in some, some ways, and I even mentioned this while we were going through these parts, we are free to do as we please, but in Christ, our goal should be to please Christ. You can do whatever you please, but your goal should be to please Christ. And what is it that pleases Christ? Before we dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I want to point this out. Jesus summarizes what pleases him in Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. It says, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets depend on these two commands. What's the most important things that we can do in our life? We love the Lord with everything that we have, and we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And this is going to be the foundation that Paul uses to refute another misconception about Christian liberty that the Corinthian church is struggling with. Now we're going to see Paul address this issue over the next three chapters. Chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 are all addressing Christian liberty, focusing on food that's sacrificed to idols. And his main focus is that the, the Christian's love for our brothers and sisters in Christ should be the motivating factor on whether or not we can eat food that's sacrificed to idols. All right? The question is, can Christians knowingly consume the food that we know for a fact has been sacrificed on an altar somewhere to uh, a false god? In in Corinth, to give a little bit of context, most of the meat that was sold in the marketplace came from their sacrificial system of animals that had been slaughtered at a pagan temple for a pagan ceremony. So the the meat from these sacrifices, they go to one of three places. The first, there's an offering that gets put on the altar, it's set on fire, it gets burned up, it's turned to ash. The second a portion of it was given to the priest. Whoever was conducting the ceremony, they would get a portion of that. That would be how they made their living. That would be what they would eat. And the third was a portion given to the one who was making the sacrifice. So part of the sacrifice that you took would come home with you, and that would be what you and your family ate. And if the priest didn't use their portion, it was taken to the meat market, and that means that a considerable amount of the sacrificed meat that was sacrificed in the temple because they're not going to be able to eat all of that that's coming through there, much of that would go out to the meat market. All right, so if you wanted to purchase meat to take home from your family in the marketplace, it was probably sacrificed to an idol. All right, if you were in the market, you were out shopping for the day, and you wanted to stop somewhere and eat, the food that you were eating was almost guaranteed to be food that had been sacrificed to an idol. Did you get invited over to a friend's house, especially a friend who's not a believer in Christ? High possibility that the food that you're eating at their house is food that had been sacrificed to an idol. Is there a festival in the city? Are they providing food in that festival? That food was probably sacrificed to an idol. You just really couldn't get away from it. And so as a Christ follower, what do you do in this situation? Right? Did the rituals that the food went through, does it taint the food? As a Christian, can you buy it? Could you eat it if you were attending a gathering at a friend's home and they offered you food? Could you eat that? Could you attend the festival? Could you attend the wedding, other social events, and have the food? This is essentially what's being brought up here. Right? What about this? What about taking it even a step further? Can a Christian go into the religious rites at that temple and then sit down and eat the food after the rites were over? So it goes beyond just having it at your house. Can you go to the temple, sit through the rite, and then eat the food? This is what Paul's addressing here. And these are good questions that are coming from a group of people that are fairly young in their faith. Right? We're talking here maybe four years. Maybe after being introduced to Christ on one of Paul's missionary journeys, they're asking these questions. In that congregation, there's some people in the church that are going to say you can absolutely eat in any of those situations. It doesn't matter what it is, you absolutely can eat in any of those situations. There are going to be others in there that say you absolutely cannot eat in any of those situations. Like not, not even a little bit. And so what are we to do in this situation? Now Paul's going to provide us with some guiding principles, and like I said, he's going to address this beginning in chapter 8, and he's going to work his way through this all the way through chapter 10. Right, he begins in chapter 8 by addressing the people in the church who think it's okay to eat food that's sacrificed to idols. And he points out another Corinthian slogan that shows that many of the people in this church lack humility. Right, they think they're above humility. Everything is permissible for me. I can do whatever I want. That lacks humility. And here we're going to see another slogan that shows that they also lack humility, and it's in verses 1 to 3. Paul says, now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. We're all very smart is essentially what these people have just said. And Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So we know that we all have knowledge. This is a slogan coming through. It's something that they probably wrote in the letter to Paul. And it shows, hey, we think we're very smart. We think we know everything that there is to know. And Paul is going to point out three things in these first three verses that shows you need to rethink this. The first thing that he points out is that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So we, we can have all the knowledge in the world. But often, as we learn more and more, and it doesn't matter about what we're learning, we can begin to feel like we have more knowledge than the next person. We begin to believe that we're better than the next person because we have more knowledge. And that can even come into our knowledge of God. The more we study the Bible, the more we begin to understand who God is, His nature, His character, we can begin to become to the point where we think that we're better than everybody else because we have taken the time to gather up this knowledge. And because of sinful human nature, often what happens is as we fill ourselves with this knowledge, we begin to think about how much we know and what it took to know it, and then we begin to look down on other people because they don't know as much as we do. We begin to walk with a bit of a swagger. We, we have some pride that begins to, to come in there. And then Paul is saying that that is just puffing you up and it's not beneficial for the, the good of the church. Right? When we have this as our mindset, the focus of our knowledge is us. And the Christian faith is all about not looking at us. It's about looking to God and looking to others. Love, on the other hand, is outwardly focused. Paul's going to give us an entire chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13, and it's all about what we do for someone else. It's not about what we get, but what we do. And love always builds up someone else. And in the process of that, it builds us up as well. As a a happy byproduct, we are built up as we are loving others. Paul says, yeah, you've got knowledge, great. You have a certain understanding of who God is. You have a certain understanding of your standing before God. But right now, that knowledge is not doing you any good because all that's doing is elevating you above other people. He says you're lacking love. You need to be focused on love. And the second thing he points out here is that you don't know it all. He says there in verse 2, he says, Even if we know some things, we don't know everything. Right? Verse 2 says, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. I don't care how long you've studied the subject, especially the subject of God. You do not know all that you need to know. I'll say it again. It, when you're learning about God, like that is what's going to make heaven such an amazing place to be. Is that pursuit of God is endless. Like, a lot of people think, well, for eternity? That's a long time. But when you are studying and learning and in relationship with an endless, boundless, infinite creator God who couldn't possibly come to the end of himself in our eyes, like, that is not going to be boring. There is always more to learn. And when we begin to act as though we are the know-it-all, we have all the answers, we're just showing that we don't really know what we should know. It's arrogant to walk around as though there is nothing more that we can learn from something. Paul says you think you know, but you don't have as much of an idea as you think you do. And the last thing that he points out there is the most important thing is being known and loved by God. And when we are known and loved by God, it will fill us with the love necessary to bring our knowledge to a humble and useful level. Love, not knowledge, must be the foundation of Christian behavior. We do what we do because we know God, but because we love God. We do what we do because we know people, but also because we love people. That has to be the foundation of what we do. True Christian Christian knowledge is inseparable from the type of love that God shows to us. If you know more and more and more about God, and that is not resulting in the fact that you are pouring out more and more and more love, it's showing that you do not understand God correctly. You don't understand who He is or what He wants from you. God loves us. God loves us and He makes Himself known to us. He loves us enough to open our eyes to the truth, to see that we are fallen people who are in desperate need of a Savior. He loves us enough to send that Savior to come live a sinless life and to take our punishment so that we can have His righteousness. This is the love that He has for us. And when we truly begin to see that, we fully understand it, The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the truth and we've accepted salvation in Christ. Then it begins to open our eyes to the truth that people need us. We stop looking so so inwardly and we begin to look outwardly. Instead of how can I be served? We begin to ask how can I serve? Who can I pour myself out for? Rather than looking, okay, who's the next person that's going to serve me? When we begin to understand this, that's when knowledge becomes helpful rather than prideful. I understand what God wants for me. He wants me to die to myself on a daily basis. He wants me to pour myself out for the good of other people. And when my knowledge gets there, that's when it becomes helpful for the kingdom of God. From here... Paul continues on by addressing the knowledge that the Corinthians have regarding the idols that the meat in these temples are sacrificed to. In verses 4-6, to Paul says this, About eating food sacrificed to idols then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there's one God, the Father. All things are from Him and we exist for Him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through Him and we exist through Him. So these pridefully knowledgeable Christians in Corinth, they do know one thing for certain. They know that the gods that this food is being sacrificed to aren't real gods. That's good knowledge to have. Right? Because they're real gods, and it doesn't matter if the food has been sacrificed to them, because with that in mind, the food is just cooked food. Right? If you're sacrificing this to a God that doesn't exist, then all you've done is cooked food. You may have taken a long time to do it, but you, all you did was cook food. And that's what the Corinthians are focusing on. They have the the knowledge that there is only one God. And and they're essentially saying in this, even if there were other little G gods, if there were other little G lords, our God is the God. There is none greater. There is none more powerful. And so even if these gods do exist, because listen, many of these little G gods that are being sacrificed to are demonic entities. They're not without power. But they're saying, even then, our God is the God. Our God is the most, the most powerful, the most important God. And, and Paul agrees with them. He does say, there is only one God. He is the creator and sustainer of all life. He is our sole purpose for existence. We exist to bring Him honor and glory in all that we think, say, and do. He agrees that there is only one Lord, and that the only one we are to bow the knee to is Jesus Christ. All things exist through him. So it is at his goodwill that we, we continue to exist. Paul acknowledges all that. And Paul is saying here that it's fantastic to know that. It's great that you have that understanding. It's great that you have that freedom. The problem, though, is here not every Christian knows that yet. Right? Just because you know it doesn't mean that everyone knows it. Everyone is on different paths through the sanctification process. Everyone has different strengths and different weaknesses. Some have a greater understanding of theology. They, have a, they, they dive deeply into the Word and they have a better understanding of who God is. Some have a, a better application of the principles that we find in the Bible where they serve better than anyone else. Maybe they don't know all the, the, the creeds and they don't know, understand all the doctrines, but they understand that God has called them to serve. And so they are better at serving than they are at teaching a Sunday school class. We're at different places. We can't assume that everyone knows what we know. And for some, there are no issues at all with eating meat sacrificed to fake idols. Right? They don't have any problem with it. For for example, some, maybe they never took part in those sacrifices to begin with. Maybe they live in Corinth, but maybe they're not from Corinth. Maybe they come to faith in in a situation where they never experienced this food sacrifice to idols. So when they go to buy that at the market, they don't understand all the processes that went through it and they don't have any issues. It's just cooked food. To others, though, we see that there is a great struggle that occurs because of what they have been saved from. Some people took part in these sacrifices. Some put people put great hope in these sacrifices. Right? Some people brought that food to that idol expecting something to happen. I want your favor. I want your blessing. I want you to do something for me. And then when they go home, they have that expectation in their heart. They go home, they eat the food that's sacrificed to the idol, and they think, I cannot wait for this to be effective. And then suddenly they realize everything that they've built their whole life on, everything that they put their hope in to this point has been a lie. That God does not exist. There is one greater who I must now follow, but there is a pull back into that old life. It's very difficult to break some of these old habits. This is what Paul addresses in verses 7 to 13. He says, however, Not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscious being weak is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We're not worse off if we don't eat it, and we're not better if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't this weak conscious be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now then, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. So Paul here says, not everyone knows that there's no authority or power in these idols. They're still coming to that realization. They're in process. They've got a relationship with Christ, but in that process, they're not quite as far along as those who have all knowledge. All right, so some people in this process, they can't see beyond the ritual that occurred to put the food on the table. Right? They, they see that and they, start, they smell it and it triggers flashbacks into when they participated in those rituals and they think, ah, I cannot do this. I cannot go back there. That stuff had such a tight hold on me and I, and I feel pulled into it as I deal with this and I cannot go back there. I cannot eat that food. There's, there, there may still be a draw to be a part of those rituals. Right? As I said, some of these little G gods that they were praying to, they may have been demonic entities. There may have been some power involved in these sacrifices. And they think, well, I still want a piece of that. There might be a draw into that. And here they are trying to get away from that. And maybe their family or their friends are trying to get them to participate still in those rituals. Right? Like when they get pulled out. They get called out of that family who has a history of being part of these rituals. And now they're like, don't go. This is wrong. You're going in the wrong direction. This is where you need to be. And so they're pulling them back. They're calling them back into that. Their entire social structure has then dissolved. And now they they have a, a completely new family in the church. But they're having to break old relationships. And it's not easy for them to do that. They're trying to distance themselves from that. Maybe they're on their way to that. But until they get stronger in their faith, they just need to distance from that, maybe forever. Maybe they can never be back in that relationship with those people, go back to those places. Paul here says Look, that food doesn't give you any any steps closer to God. He said, It's not a big deal if you don't eat it, then it's not a big deal if you do eat it. It's just food. Paul does acknowledge that. It's just food. You're not better off for eating it. You're not better off for not eating it in and of itself. But what we need to consider is how us eating it impacts our brothers or sisters around us. Is there a weaker brother or sister around us that is going to stumble because they see us eating that? Is it going to change their relationship with us? Is it going to change their perspective of it? Right? They see us eating it, and they think, well, I can do that. And then they go into it and have that same situation. Then all of a sudden, they're back in that mindset of sacrifice, pagan, pagan rituals. Maybe they can't handle the idea of eating that food. If our willingness to eat the meat sacrificed to idols causes one of our weaker brothers or sisters to stumble, then our freedom to eat becomes our shame. Paul says we should be willing to lay all of that down for the benefit of someone else. Paul says this this weighs heavily on your brothers or sisters. And you are so caught up in your freedom, you are so caught up in your knowledge that you're not willing to lay this down so that a brother or sister in Christ doesn't stumble over it. That is knowledge that has puffed up. And love that is not building up. Paul says to sin against a brother or sister in this way is to sin against Christ himself. So in your mind, you might have the mindset, this is not sin. I am not sinning. I have freedom in Christ. I can do whatever I want. I am not sinning against God. But when you are not taking your brothers and sisters in Christ into consideration, you are in fact sinning against Christ. Two greatest commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. To willfully and willingly sin against neighbor, even if it's not a sin against God, is sinning against God. Paul, therefore, says that if food causes a brother or sister to fall, he will never again eat meat so that he will avoid their temptation. He's willing to lay it all down to avoid tempting someone else. He's willing to alter his life for the benefit of someone else. What about us? Are we so caught up in our freedom in Christ that we are not willing to think about and consider the good of others around us? Now, in our culture, we don't really struggle with this a whole lot. We don't have temples where meat's being sacrificed to idols. But we have other things going on. Many of the things that pop up when this conversation comes up, the the primary one that I usually hear is alcohol. Can a Christian drink alcohol? Well, it depends on the, the circumstances. The Bible does not say that, Drinking alcohol is sinful. The Bible says that being drunk is sinful. And so can a brother or sister in Christ have a drink? Yes, they can. Can they get drunk? No, they cannot. But what if the fact that you drink brings someone who has struggled with alcohol into contact with that alcohol? They've been trying to abstain. They've been staying away from it. Maybe it's these people that one drink never is just one drink. It always becomes three. It's four. It's six. And they come over to your house. And they see you having that drink. And you offer them if they want a drink. And yeah, that's fine. They can have that drink. It's not sinful. But that drink turns into two. Turns into three. And now they're on a downward spiral. Because they have not been able to break away. From the chains that alcohol has placed on them. Are you in sin for having a drink? No, you're not. Are you in sin if your drink causes a weaker brother and sister to stumble? Yeah, you are. And there are many other situations. I mean, there, there a couple that I came up with was uh, what about what we watch? Now, there are some things that we watch on TV that are inherently sinful. We've gone through this, the whole talk about pornography and all that. Inherently sinful, you absolutely cannot watch that. What about a show that has several graphic sex scenes in it? It's not inherently porn. But if you have any kind of struggle with that in your past and you're watching these shows that just throw gratuitous nudity all over the screen can you watch that as a believer in christ do you have freedom in that yes or no i mean that's that's a question for you right can you watch that and not sin all right what if let's take it a step further go a little bit further down the rabbit hole all right what if what you're watching isn't inherently sinful what if you're watching a show that is produced by people who are directly opposed to the things of Christ? Right. What if you watch shows on a, on a platform that is pushing the LGBTQ agenda in all of their forms? Can you watch a show that doesn't have any of that On a platform that you know supports all of that. You have Christian liberty. You have Christian freedom. The question is, can you separate out the one show from the rest? And again, I'm not giving you answers. This is just stuff to think about. Can you shop at a place where the thing that you're buying is not inherently sinful, but the store itself supports LGBTQ agendas and pushes that? can you shop there? Again, I'm not answering the question for you. It's it's a question that you need to address for yourself. Can you buy coffee at a place that supports Planned Parenthood? Is there anything wrong with the coffee? No. That coffee has not been sacrificed to any idol. But the question is do you want to support what they support? Again, I'm not giving you answers to these questions. I'm just saying this is what this looks like in our day and age. We don't have the pagan temple with the drums beating and people taking in their sacrifice and going home with food sacrificed to idols. It looks different for us. And the question is, are you willing to put down your right to go to that store to watch that television show? to drink that coffee for your young, your weaker brothers and sisters in Christ? Right, or is that a stance that you want to take so that there is a rock in their life that they can lean on when they are struggling with their conscience in these areas? I mean, this stuff's not easy. And the knowledge of it is not going to do us any good it's the love that comes from that knowledge that is going to move us into the right direction with our brothers and sisters in Christ and this is what Paul is going to talk about through the next three chapters he's going to address your liberty in Christ he's going to address the freedom that you have in Christ but that freedom is wrapped should be wrapped up in the love that you have for God and the love that you have for one another let's pray together Father, it's my desire to love you with everything that I've got. It's my desire to love my neighbor with everything that I've got. Lord, I know I fail at this all the time, every single day. But I'm grateful for Christ. I'm grateful for the freedom that he has given me to release me from the chains the slavery that I had to sin. I'm grateful that he has freed me from the chains of punishment, condemnation that I have. And it is my desire, Lord, that I would bring you honor in all that I do. And, Lord, like Paul, I pray for this church that we would have a desire to love our weaker brothers and sisters in Christ well. I pray that we would see the benefit of abstaining from certain things for the betterment and the growth of weaker brothers and sisters. I pray that our knowledge of you would continue to grow, build us up in love so that we would pour out that love in our worship to you and that we would pour out that love in service to everyone else. It would help us to see areas in our life where we may be making choices that are causing others to stumble. Lord, I pray that we would have hearts that are willing to be open-handed with everything that we, we have and that we do, and that we would be willing to lay that down if you should call us to that because of the people that you have surrounded us with. Help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen.